there is nothing worth living for unless it is worth dying for. My grandmother lived a life devoted to Jesus, and today her talks have been made available in their original form. So you too can be built up through the insights and mysteries God revealed to her throughout her ministry. Now, without further ado, here is Elizabeth Elliot. Crucifixion means death, vitality means life. So I hope that today we will be able to perhaps perceive a little bit more clearly this basic principle that runs all the way through Scripture from Genesis to Revelation, that life comes out of death. We were given a clipping just a week or so ago showing a picture of a 192-foot, two-masted luxury motor yacht. My husband had seen this docked in Florida, and he and some friends were speculating who in the world would ever build a thing like that, and the clipping told us who it was, nobody that you've ever heard of. But it cost $30 million, one of the largest of its type, weighs five, 550 tons, has two 2,800-horsepower engines, 135-foot masts, alarms that tell you when other alarms aren't working, all modern navigational accessories, $4 million worth of paintings for decoration. Get this one, a Steinway Grand Piano and a Yamaha Upright, 35 tons of marble, a pool with underwater lights and speakers, 11 TV, TV sets, a library of 1,000 videos, another library of 1,000 CDs, there was no mention of any books. Uh, a crew of 12. It carries 40,000 gallons of gas. It has x-ray machines, oxygen tanks, an EKG system, a speedboat on board, a fishing boat on board, also a landing craft, an inflatable boat, two sunfish sailboats, jet skis, two cars, motor scooters, and bicycles. My title of the first talk is Chasing the Wind. <laughs> and I would say that that sort of a thing, a toy, a plaything, obviously the man doesn't, couldn't possibly need all that. Maybe he needs a boat. It's hard to imagine that he does, but I would assume that it is for fun. And we are obsessed in our country with comfort and fun. And I guess he has all that could possibly be provided up to this point. Next week, somebody will have a bigger boat, no doubt. And incidentally, they said that the company that was making the boat went out of business in the middle of the project, and so he simply bought the company. <clears throat> but it is a monument to the insufficiency of human enjoyments. I would suppose that this man has had everything else that a man could possibly have or want, but he wanted this. So now that he's got this, what is he going to get next? Is it possible for him to find satisfaction, let alone happiness, in that boat? Well, Samuel Johnson said that the Great Pyramids, one of the two 
wonders of the world, two greatest wonders of the world, the other being the Great Wall of China, <clears throat> for which the purpose is very obvious. The Great Wall of China was to keep out barbarians. But the purpose of the pyramids, no one has ever really been very sure of. And Samuel Johnson's judgment was that they, they are proof that when all desire is fulfilled, we must enlarge our desires. When you've got everything you want, it's not enough. The Pharaoh built for use, built many other things, temples and roads and whatnot for use. But when he got around to building the pyramids, Johnson says he was building for vanity. Because boredom sets in, and boredom must be counteracted with ever new and greater excitements. One of the monuments to the insufficiency of human enjoyments, which we see more often in the fall and spring than we do right now, are the garage sales. Why are there so many garage sales? Well, because people are always buying things which they think are going to bring them satisfaction. And if you get this kind of skis this year, you have to get another kind of skis next year. And so obviously you've got to have a garage sale to get rid of the skis and the clothes and the furniture and the gadgets in the kitchen. I bought a, a mixer from the people across the street from us. It cost me $5. I mean, it's a very fancy electric mixer. But uh, I don't know what they got to replace it. But these garage sales testify to the short span of pleasures. Jim Baker had to have the world's biggest water slide. My husband and I stayed in his hotel a couple of times and out the window we could see the world's biggest water slide. And we really were not tempted to try it out. <laughs> Why do we have the Sears Towers in Chicago? Well, because the tallest building in the world was in New York. But now, I don't know whether it's still the tallest buildings in the world, or I guess it's maybe the trade towers in New York. I can't keep track, but nobody really needs a building that high. It's just the, a monument to the insufficiency of human enjoyments, a monument to human pride. People seem to have lots of money in a time of recession. I read in Time magazine that the cruise business is booming. And it's got to be the biggest ship, the best ship, the longest cruise, and the expensive watches, Rolex watches. Who needs a Rolex when a Timex will do fine? You want a Lamborghini car or a jacuzzi or a new hairdo or a dress or a Reeboks or safari clothes. My husband and I were in Kenya in December, and I just couldn't help being amused at these American tourists who had all rushed out to buy safari clothes. I mean, what difference does it make to the elephants what in the world you're wearing? You can see them just as well with a pair of blue jeans and a t-shirt, but no, they all had this olive green color, you know, very expensive fancy jackets with very expensive cameras and all the rest of it. It's infatuation with possessions, with beating the Joneses, and an infatuation with activity. Why is the safari business booming? We just could not believe the number of tour places, tour 
offices in the city of Nairobi, literally hundreds, I guess, all of them arranging tours for Americans who are bored to death and looking constantly for something new, something better, bigger, which leads to boredom. The more that you get, the more bored you are, the more weariness you experience, and the more anxiety, because how are you going to take care of this? You've got to have all sorts of fancy locks and security systems. Another thing that I notice that indicates the insufficiency of human enjoyments is whatever people are doing, they've got to have music. We were taking our walk the other day around Magnolia, and we always walk around Shore Drive, and way over on the beach, the Manchester part of the beach, they were fixing the Manchester Bath and Tennis Club, which was very badly damaged on Halloween in the big storm. And all the way across that section of the water, we could hear this thundering music that the workmen had to have. And you've got to have music, you've got to have noise, you've got to have company, and you've got to have coffee breaks. And we're going to have a coffee break here, right? <laughs> we live in the t-shirt, stuffed toys, and coffee mug society. I was when I drive down the road and, and see people drinking coffee while they're driving and they've got earphones on sometimes or they're singing, you see people all by themselves in the car and I suppose every now and then it might be somebody singing hymns, which would be wonderful, but probably they're singing to the music that they're hearing. I'm not bashing all this stuff, I'm just saying it does tell us something about our society. I think back to my own childhood and there was never such a thing as a cup of coffee any time except at the table for breakfast. There was a cup of tea for supper, but it never crossed my parents' minds that they had to have a coffee break. And the minute you get on the airplane, everybody's wondering when in the world they're going to come down the aisle with, with the cold, with the drinks. And then they come back down the aisle, you know, with a bag of empty cans about this big. What does the t-shirt tell us that we are interested in comfort? What does the stuffed toy tell us? Well, that we really don't want to grow up. Everybody's got stuffed toys and those dreadful cats pasted to the windows. What are they? Garfields stuck to the windows. I mean, it's fine if it belongs to the child, but everybody else, I mean, everybody seems to have stuffed toys in the offices and on their desks. And, and the coffee mug society, I think, is just a sign of, of self-indulgence. And we're so used to this, we don't think anything about it. But I'm one of these people that's always examining things and trying to figure out, what does this mean? And you may disagree with me totally, as, as Mr. Fillinger said. Um, you may think a whole lot of things that I say are just out to lunch. But I am an observer. I'm always asking, what is this? What does it mean? You can decide what you think it means. A need for a change. In public life, if we, if we happen to be in public life, we long for solitude. If we happen to live a solitary life, we long to have more company and more visibility. If we're up, we want to be down. If we're in, we want to be out like the dog. It's always the other side of the door, whichever it is that the dog wants. If you're married, you wish you were single sometimes. And if you're single, you certainly think that all your problems would be solved if you just could get yourself a wife or a husband. So let me read to you what the Bible says about this sort of thing. The book of Ecclesiastes, verses 1 to 10. If you're trying to put down 
an outline. You've already put down the title of my talk, Chasing the Wind. First point is the insufficiency of human enjoyments, and the reference is Ecclesiastes 1, 1 to 10, and 2, 1 to 11. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What does man gain from all his labor at which he toils under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south and turns round to the north, and round and round it goes, ever returning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full. To the place the streams come from, there they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye never has enough of seeing, nor the ear its fill of hearing. What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, this is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. Chapter 2, 1 to 11, I thought in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is foolish, and what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was worthwhile for men to do under heaven during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers and a harem as well, the delights of the heart of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. That seems to characterize Americans. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my work, and this was the reward for all my labor. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Samuel Johnson gives five steps to discontent. The first, to perceive some deficiency in your present situation. Perceive deficiency. Second, to imagine another state or happiness to be derived from the new. Third, to oversimplify the imagined state with no thought of the disagreeable features. Oversimplify. Number four, work to attain the dream. And number five, discover that the new situation is not the answer. 
Now, I think we can find in the story of the prodigal son all five of those things. First of all, he was undoubtedly bored in his father's house. There wasn't a whole lot going on. He wanted to go and see new places and interesting things and do exciting things. And what he needed to do that was some money. Secondly, he was imagining some other state or happiness to be derived from what was new. Let's go someplace where we haven't been before. Let's do things we've never tried before. You've got to go hang gliding and hot air ballooning. That was another thing that I noticed in Kenya. We went on this two-day safari, and it was absolutely thrilling and fabulous to me. To, all, you, all I wanted to do was see animals. But I found out that when you got to this particular camp, they also offered hot air balloon flights. Well, if I see an elephant about 10 feet away and I'm looking him straight in the eye, that's enough for me. I don't have to see him from a hot air balloon looking down. But we imagine that some other state or happiness is to be derived from something new. You wouldn't want to go back and have your friends say, did you go up in the hot air balloon and say, no, we missed that. You know, you got to do it all. You got to have it all. Every Sunday morning in front of our house in Magnolia, there's a scuba diving class all summer long. Everybody's got to go down to the depths of the sea and up to the heights and go to the uninhabited island, imagining an, another state or happiness to be derived from something new. The third thing is you oversimplify the imagined state which, with no thought of the disagreeable features. When that poor young man was given his inheritance, and I have no doubt that his father knew exactly what he was going to do with that, just blow it, but because he was presumably of legal age to receive it, his father, knowing a father's responsibility to let go and to let his child make terrible choices, gave him the money and off he went. Well, the son undoubtedly had no idea how soon that money would be gone. He certainly didn't ever imagine that he was going to end up eating pig's food and doing the work of a low slave. No thought of the disagreeable features. Number four, he worked to attain the dream. He demanded the money and he went off wherever it was. And number five, he discovered that his new situation was not the answer. It was vanity and vexation of spirit he found himself in the very pit of slime, in the pigsty, actually eating pig's food. Whereupon, he then imagined a better state, which was one that he had known all along, back in his father's house, knowing that money was not the answer, the pleasure that he sought was not sufficient, and he realized that even the servants in his father's house were far better off than he was. And he then made a willed choice, and he said, I will arise and go back to my father. And that's what he did. St. Augustine said, O God, thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. And that is the problem that is what we long for, because every last one of us was made for fellowship and harmony with God. 
and our hearts will never be anything but restless until we rest in Him. Now I'd like you right now to ask yourself, would you describe yourself as contented? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but I would just be interested to know how you would describe yourself. Are you a contented man? Are you a contented woman? And I'm going to stop talking and give you the chance to think about the answer to that, yes or no, and then think, if the answer is no, what do you lack? And I hope you will make yourself a few notes there to ponder over later on. Okay, did you get at the cause of your misery? My husband is back there wondering why I was pushing the pause button. I guess he hadn't heard my question. Did you get at the cause of your discontent? So let's put down for B, if you're keeping an outline here, the cause of our misery. Is it lack of money, lack of friends, intimacy, understanding? Nobody understands me. My husband doesn't quite live up to my expectations. I had oversimplified the imagined state of marriage, and who wouldn't? <laughs> Nobody could possibly know what they were getting into when they get married any more than we can know what we're getting into when we decide to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. He doesn't give us a blueprint. He doesn't tell us the details. He certainly can never be accused of false advertising because he said, if you want to be my disciple, you must give up your right to yourself. What does that entail? You must take up your cross. What does that entail? And you must follow me. We oversimplify the imagined state. We work to attain the dream. We discover that the new situation is not the answer. Well, the only situation that I know of where that uh, last would not be true is in following the Lord. It will not be the same as what you imagined. I always tell young people who ask me about the will of God, and they say, but, you know, it's just so scary. I mean, what if God did to me what he did to you? <laughs> and I say, and what did God ever do to me that he didn't do for me? I said to my dentist a couple of weeks ago when I was about to leave the office, I said, and what are you going to do to me next? And he said, not to, for. And that's what I've been saying all along. God never did anything to me that he, hadn't, that he hasn't done for me. And following the Lord, the more you do it, the more obedient you are, the more you trust him, the more wonderful it is. There is no disappointment of that sort. But was the cause of your minis mis misery lack of health? And that certainly is not a comfortable thing, is it? Some of you probably are suffering real pain, maybe even right now. Lack of security, self-esteem, certainty about the future. Whatever you put down, if you put anything at all down, as something you lack, um, let's see if that is the real cause of our misery. I believe that the real cause is evil. Moral evil. 
And by that, I don't necessarily mean that the cause of whatever your misery happens to be is because of your sin. Although, if you and I had been in Adam and Eve's place, I think we probably would have done exactly what Adam and Eve did. But because of their disobedience to God, there has been death and sorrow and destruction and sin in the world ever since. What really happened back there in the Garden of Eden was a ruptured relationship. Moral evil springs from a ruptured relationship with him for whom and by whom we were made. God made us to glorify him and, as the Westminster Catechism puts it, to enjoy him forever. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. The world would say the chief end of man is to glorify himself and enjoy himself forever. Is your life lived for the glory of God or for the glory of yourself? Do you seek primarily comfort and fun or do you seek the glory of God, which I believe the latter is the root to the deepest kind of comfort and the greatest kind of happiness. But it is a total diametrical opposite from the, what the world is telling us. What you need is things and people and experiences and fun. And the truth is we are orphans. We are wanderers. We experience a deep existential loneliness because of the ruptured relationship. We can no longer walk in the cool of the day with God. You remember that Adam and Eve had had that tremendous pleasure and privilege of walking with God in the cool of the day. And the minute that relationship was ruptured, they hid themselves. And we too hide ourselves from God and from each other. Truth, of course, is that we can never hide from God. God knows us. Do you know that old prayer, Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are open, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid? Cleanse the thoughts of our hearts that we may perfectly love thee and worthily magnify thy holy name. The master sin is not an individual action or deed toward another person, but it is the failure to recognize the highest relationship of all, the one which is the root and essential condition of every other true relation, harmony with God, harmony with him who is life. I'll repeat that. The master's sin is not an individual action or deed toward another, but failure to recognize the highest of all relations, one which is the root and essential condition of every other true relation, harmony with him who is life. In 1 John 5.12, we read, He who has the Son, S-O-N, has life. He who does not have the Son of God 
does not have life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And that is what is at the bottom of our discontent. What we need is not more things, what we need is more life. Life with a capital L. And there is only one source. It is God himself, Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In other words, we aren't really living. I've heard the story about a man who wanted to be buried in his Cadillac. And so they dug a monstrous hole and they sat the, the corpse up in behind the wheel of his Cadillac. And as the car was being lowered into the ground, one of his friends stood there and said, boy, that's really living. <laughs> and the Bible tells us that we are dead. We are dead in trespasses and sins. And the relationship has been ruptured. There is no more life. And what we desperately long for and hunger for, the reason we are orphans, the reason we are lonesome, the reason we are discontented, the reason that we heap to ourselves possessions and friends and experiences is the ruptured relationship. We need life. And any of you who are as old as I am or older, you ought to have figured this out long since, even all by yourself without the Bible, that things will never do it. And when we go down to Palm Beach, which is where my, brother, my husband's mother lives, that's the reason he goes down there every now and then, that's where he saw this fabulous boat, almost everybody in Palm Beach is a good deal older than I am. And they're still frantically searching. Bigger clubs, fancier boats. The marinas are just jammed with boats, and Donald Trump's boat had to be out in the ocean because it's too big to come in to the Palm Beach marina, which is vast. They can't figure it out. They don't know what they lack. And you and I who know Jesus Christ know that we live in him. Now I want to give you a definition of vitality. We're talking about the vitality of the crucified life. It is the manifestation or embodiment of life. The manifestation or embodiment of life. Vital force, power, and energy. Jesus came to give us life. John 1.4 says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Do you ever stop to think about the fact that when you wake up in the morning, you wouldn't be able to open your eyes, you would not be able to take the next breath, let alone put your feet out of the bed on, on the floor and stand up if it weren't for God. I mean, he is the life of the whole world. There would be absolutely no life of any kind for even one second without him. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. He was, Jesus Christ was the word. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. 
same was in the beginning with God, and by him all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. We are not living until we live in him. Self is but the shadow of life, said someone, and when it is taken for life and set as man's center, it becomes a live death in the man, a devil he worships as his god. Now, it's pretty hard to get this message across in this day and age. When we are being bombarded, even in the church, in Christian books, Christian bookstores, with the notion that we must learn to love ourselves. I hear this everywhere I go. I can't love my neighbor until I learn to love myself. I heard a girl say this just last night. I don't like who I am. I'm trying to learn to love myself. It's self that ruined us. It was self that raised its fist at God in the Garden of Eden and said, we're not going to do your thing, we're going to do our thing. We're going to upgrade our lifestyle. We're going to do what we want to do when we want to do it. And of course, the sneaking suspicion which had been planted in their minds by the enemy, our ancient foe who seeks to work us woe, was that God was cheating them of the one thing that would really complete their happiness. The truth was that God had forbidden them the one thing that would ruin their happiness, because God did not create man and woman to bear the burden of the knowledge of good and evil. We were not designed to bear that kind of weight. And so he said, don't touch that tree. Just as a loving mother says to the little child, don't touch that hot stove. Don't put your finger in the electric plug. Don't play in the street. And the little child cries because he wants to touch the stove. He wants to play in the street. And he says, you hate me. You don't let me do anything. And that was the rupture of the relationship. In him was life, happiness, fulfillment, joy, bliss, perfection. God didn't want anything else for his children. What do you who have children want for your children? Joy, perfection, bliss, happiness, peace, everything that can be found only in Jesus Christ. If you love them, you couldn't possibly want anything less. God loves us. God loved Adam and Eve. He created these creatures to fellowship with himself. Imagine God wanting fellowship. Our chief end is to glorify him, to live with him, in him, for him, by him. And yet we try every imaginable substitute. Vitality is the manifestation or embodiment of life, the vital force, power, energy. Self is but the shadow of life, and when it is taken for life and set as man's center, 
it becomes a live death in the man, a devil he worships as his god. It's George MacDonald that said that. The third thing, Jesus came to teach us how to live. And the tragedy today is that people don't know how to live. They don't know how to live. They don't, they don't know what peace is, contentment, quietness, sitting still. I was talking with a young mother just the other day about teaching her child to sit still. It had never crossed her mind that you could teach a little child to sit still. Well, I was taught, my mother taught six of us to sit still. We had to sit still at the table. We had to sit still at prayers. We had to sit still in the car. We had to sit still in church. Well, nowadays, as far as this young woman knew, the only place where any child is ever expected to sit still is in church, and that for not more than 10 minutes. And then they go trooping out for junior church. Stillness. How in the world are you going to teach a child to sit still in church if he's never sat still at the table? He's up and down and around and around. The other day we had dinner with a young couple with four little children, and the three-year-old girl literally ran around and around the dining room table throughout most of the meal. And the father turned to us and he said, it's my fault. He said, I could discipline my sons, but I can't discipline my daughter. We don't know how to live. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Take from our souls the strain and stress how many of you are stressed out this morning? I hear little kids telling me they're stressed out. Take from our souls the strain and stress and let our ordered lives confess the beauty of thy peace. Jesus came to teach us how to live. We're always mistaking the occasions of our misery for the cause. If you think back on your list of the things that you needed in order to be content or the things that you lacked, very possibly all of them are merely the occasions of misery, not the cause. Everything you've ever wanted will never be enough. That 192-foot yacht, that new scuba diving equipment, that new outfit, that new car, does it provide vital force and energy and power to live as we're designed to live? Obviously not. Nothing will ever, ever, ever suffice except Jesus Christ. And some of the happiest people I know are the people who know Jesus Christ and have next to nothing else. Next to nothing. And I can say in all simplicity and honesty that when I lived in the house with no walls and no floors and no furniture, when I lived with the Alcas, I was perfectly content. I felt that it might be nice to have a little privacy once in a while, but I can say that that was home to me. When that was the place where God wanted me to be, it was home. And when I had to go out to civilization and come back, I would be walking along the trail three days 
of trail and canoe travel thinking, I want to get home. I'm looking forward to getting back to my little home. Because God was there, and that's where he wanted me, and I found contentment. Nothing will ever suffice except Jesus Christ. Now, it is easy to parrot those words and to apply them only to the unsaved. Well, I know what's wrong with that poor guy. You know, he doesn't know Jesus. I know Jesus. Would he look at your life, your style of living, and know that you are a contented person? Would he see vitality, energy, power there that he lacks? Would he ask where it comes from? We were created for life in God himself, for harmony with him. And that harmony is different from the harmony between God and the stars, as far as I know. The harmony between God and the lobsters, God and the trees, God and the mountains. And God must joy in all of those things as he makes me joy in them. I love all God's creation and I never tire of looking at the ocean and the trees and the birds. But he has created you and me with the power to choose to love him or not to love him. Because he wanted a special kind of harmony in those whom he created in his own image. Harmony between himself and us. And it requires the alignment of two wills. God's will and that God-created will that he gave me. Imagine a creator who would make a creature capable of defying him. Why should he have done that? Well, it's a mystery, but I have a, I, I have a hunch that part of the reason was because he wanted us to be free to choose to love him. And we could not have been free to choose to love him unless we were also free to choose to defy him. There is no union without separateness. There is no harmony without distinction. The harmony of an orchestra includes the tuba and the piccolo and all the violins and all the rest of it. They are as different as night and day. And it is a harmony that is brought together by the union of distinctions. And that is what God created when he created a person, a creature capable of choosing to disobey. There is no harmony without two wills. And to quote George MacDonald again, you have to forgive me for this, but I feel that it's part of part, a major part of my job is passing on to other people a whole lot of stuff that's out of print and just sort of being a channel. So he said, if every sunlit sail-crowded sea under blue heaven flecked with wind-chased white filled your soul as with a new gift of life, think what sense of existence must be yours if he whose thought has but fringed its garment with the gladness of such a show, were to make his abode in you. 
And while thinking of the gladness of God inside your being, let you know and feel that he is carrying you as a father in his bosom. The one who created the sunlit, sail-crowded sea under blue heaven flecked with wind-chased white, white, if that fills your soul as with a new gift of light, what does it do to you to realize that this same God lives in me and is carrying me as a father in his bosom? I had a letter not long ago, just this last week, saying, why is your program always so sad? And then another said, the Holy Spirit has used your teaching of the cross, death to self, as the only life to be lived, to draw me to that life. I was going through the very painful experience of finding my way with a little retarded son and an unhappy marriage. With as few words as possible, my life was and is being transformed by this teaching. In the midst of suffering, many times I have had a joyful and peaceful life a wonderful, loving marriage, the same person, she says, that ended October 15, 1987, with the death of my precious husband of 38 years. Well, I don't want my program to be sad. I want to talk about the vitality, and that's our subject today. I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today. And we'll keep joining us here and on social media for my granny's inspiration. Until then, remember, the eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms. <laughs>